Hey folks, welcome back to the Eat Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Dylan Ayers. So if you're a resident hunter in BC, uh, you no doubt would have heard there was a significant uh, court case called the uh, Yahe versus BC and the implications that came out of that court decision uh, have had a significant impact to resident hunting opportunities in Region 7B up in the Peace Country. So just a high-level overview, uh, the Blueberry First Nation has taken the provincial government to court uh, because their way of life has been impacted by resource extraction in their traditional territory. And under their treaty rights, that way of life to hunt, fish, trap uh, is protected under the treaty rights. And the hundred years of oil and gas and forestry and other land impacts have had the cumulative impact of having having an impact on their way of life. And so what came out of that court decision was a a request by the courts for government to negotiate, uh, I guess you can call it reconciliation or agreements with the Blueberry First Nation to reconcile those past infringements on their treaty rights. The result is a fairly significant uh, reduction in moose harvest, a complete ban or, or of hunting caribou in Region 7. Um, so so fairly, fairly major uh, uh, implications to, to resident hunting, um, but more so a fairly uh, significant step towards reconciliation and understanding uh, the First Nation rights here in BC. In this case, it'll no doubt have uh, ripple effects going across how, how government and First Nations uh, uh, make decisions on uh, land use going forward. So yeah, pretty interesting stuff. Anyway, so what, what I've done here is, is I, and I think it's really important to get some, understand a bit of history around this, uh, how we got here, uh, try to break down what the actual decision was and the implications are to uh, resident hunters and others, and of course, First Nations too. So I brought to, I brought in Jesse Zeman of, of the BCWF, the BC Wildlife Federation. He's the president, or sorry, the executive director of, of BC Wildlife Federation um, to come in and, and, and break down some of that detail for us. Uh, I've also invited my friend Spencer Greening Lagood. He's a he's a good good friend of mine, and he's an Indigenous scholar here, um, and has is doing his doctorate work on on Indigenous land management, and has a great perspective. And he's also a great speaker about this stuff. So um, I think we're able to have a we had a pretty good conversation. So I'm hoping you're going to enjoy this conversation and and have a little bit more of a, a full. Uh, understanding of the complexity and the context of, of what's sort of happening here and uh, and hopefully that can help you um, advocate for for well, ultimately better management of, of the land and and uh, and we'll go from there but before we get started I should just do a shout out to our friends at seek outside who are uh, sponsoring this podcast and uh, if you want take advantage of they, they make TP tents with uh, Little wood stoves inside that stay warm and dry on your next adventure. You can use Eat Wild as a discount code to get a bit of a deal uh, on your next tent. Um, they also make great backpack, well, ultra light backpacks uh, um, that I've been lucky enough to use on a couple of hunts. And uh, anyway, check them out. And I should let you know what's coming up for Eat Wild. We have um, the Hunter Field Skills Workshop is coming up in uh, in May, so we're doing 
do take 12 people out onto a friend's ranch in the interior and teach them everything they need to know about uh, hunting in BC or hunting deer in BC and uh, and also have some amazing food prepared by Wild Northern Way and Jody Peck. So that's a great uh, three-day workshop um, packed full of lessons and and uh, and fun workshop stuff and uh, hopefully make you a better hunter uh, as an outcome. So, okay, let's get into this one. Hey guys, welcome back to the Wild Podcast. Spencer Greening, look good. Nice to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Excited to be here. Awesome. So, I know. And you, uh, yeah, you like talking about difficult subjects. So you're, you're, you're eager to get onto this one. I appreciate that. Uh, Spencer's a good friend of mine, sheep hunting partner. He's also an Indigenous scholar, and he's coming to chat with us today uh, about, well, well, I'm going to let Jesse introduce the topic. We also have Jesse Zeman here. Hi, hey, Jesse, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks, Dylan. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, last time we were hanging out, you, you were a director of wildlife. You've now moved into the um, the executive director role at BCWF. I was really happy to hear the news that you've moved into that position because you're the right guy for the job and no better timing to then to land there in, in the last sort of six months when the uh, the uh, recent uh, decision related to the Blueberry First Nation and um, uh, it has landed and the implications of that decision. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And I And I... I, I think what I'll do is I'll just hand it over to Jesse first just to kind of introduce the, the news of the day which is, and, and how we got here with, the, um, with this decision and what the implications were uh, to, um, uh, I guess there's, there's, a, there's a proposed regulation change for hunters and uh, in, in resident hunters in BC. So maybe I'll hand it to you because you, you've been speaking, this has probably your, been your life for the last little while. So I'll let you sort of uh, share the, the background. And then I'd like to go back to Spencer and kind of set the things up a little bit more. But we'll go over to you, Jesse. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try to try to do it justice. Um, this this started quite a you know a few years ago, and it really it started years before that. But essentially, in the northeast corner of the province, um, we have Treaty Eight First Nations, which actually spans across northern Alberta, Saskatchewan, into the NWT. Um, there's a number of nations that are part of the treaty. There were a few like McLeod Lake that were added on afterwards. Um, but there's a bottom line is there was a treaty signed, I believe in 1899. And, and the, the salient piece around that is that treaty eight, um, members would have the right to hunt fish and trap, um, undisturbed is essentially the big clause. And so as time went on, um, we had all these issues around resource extraction. Um, if anybody's been up to the piece, uh, the lower piece especially, and explored, um, it's pretty much nuked, to be very honest. And so um, the provincial government, you know, kind of did its best to avoid this issue for years and essentially neglected its treaty obligations, which resulted in the blueberry taking the province to court. And essentially what happened in court is the blueberry said, through cumulative effects, so things like logging, oil and gas, all of those things that are not great for wildlife, you have impaired or impacted our treaty right to hunt fish and trap undisturbed. And so the judge um, or the court looked at all of the evidence and said, yes, that is true. And so the ruling basically was, you know, province, you've, you've been a bad partner in this treaty. You've nuked this landscape. I'm going to give you six months to figure this out. And so all authorizations are on hold for now. And I'm going to give you six months to figure out a path forward. 
That's that's essentially the court case now. Okay, so let's just get a couple a couple clarification. When you say authorizations, um, that extends to oil and gas authorizations, forestry authorizations. Well, and and yeah. so so the challenge is, you know, so the court case was around cumulative effects. So one would assume that that was related, yes, to oil and gas, forestry, mining, all of that stuff. But the the government lawyers have interpreted that to mean any authorizations period. And so the government lawyers trap license hunting in that negotiation. So when you review the court case, there was nothing about license hunting. It was really focused on resource, unsustainable resource extraction. But the provincial lawyers who I might add lost the court in a really bad way are now interpreting that as all authorizations. And I will also add, you know, just quickly that the BC Wildlife Federation was approached to essentially be a defendant on behalf of the province in this court case. And we respectfully declined, um, basically stating, you know, we agree with what the blueberry is doing and what they're saying. You know, you've nuked this landscape and you've done a really poor job of managing it. So, um, so yeah, we, we actually said, you know, we're not interested in, in being a defendant for the province. The blueberry, from our perspective, are in the right and, and you need to do a better job. So, so to sum it up, I, I, I know in the way that I, I read this, I've, I've, I've spent some time reading it today and, and been to, and actually had a, had a couple of presentations now through my work as well, just kind of understanding the impacts. But at, at the, it's the treaty itself speaks to a, to maintaining a way of life. And, 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 and now that way of life is interrupted by the, the cumulative effects of resource extraction. So that, that and ultimately that, they were, the province was given six months to get this to, to, to negotiate uh, some reconciliation or uh, some accommodations around that, and and part of that negotiation package was an agreement to reduce the moose harvest and the moose hunting pressure in the in the area uh, of of the of the um, blueberry first nation traditional territory. In all of Treaty Eight, it's in a, so it, the negotiation is to close caribou and the entire region. And to reduce where we're at, the proposal is to reduce the moose harvest by 50% in the entire Peace region and to close caribou entirely. So it's not that the proposal is not in the blueberry area. It's in the entire piece. Okay. Yeah. I didn't actually clue into that, but that, okay. So, so, let's, so let's get, <laughs> so Chetwin to Dawson Creek all the way to the Yukon border is what we're talking, you know, it's a, we're talking about a huge, huge piece of, of land for sure. Yeah, and, and pretty pretty major major change for sure. Um, hey, so Spencer, um, we you, we had you. I had you over for dinner the other day, and I was kind of like, you know, we were talking about this and uh, the social media posts. I think the probably I'm interested to get from you, Spencer. Like when you saw this decision, and and, and you've spent some time negotiating uh, treaty and uh, been on council uh, with your nation. Uh, can you? Can you reflect on this decision from from an indigenous perspective and as someone who's been in government and resource management and also a hunter? Yeah, I so uh, I think Jesse has laid it out quite well that the the real crux here, the culprit, is that industry has been given the go ahead by government to really, to use Jesse's words, nuke a landscape. And I think the one of the quotes in the um, the decision 
or the argument by uh, Blueberry's lawyers was it was death by a thousand cuts, the accumulative effects. Um, but uh, yeah, so so knowing that that's kind of uh, we hold the, I hold the same opinion as an indigenous person. I feel like that's the real injustice is is uh, the oversight, um, the lack of oversight by the government. But of course, um, being a hunter and being, um, uh, you know, I consume hunting social media and I'm in those spaces. As soon as it came out, you, you get people's opinions and you see the messages coming out. And my instant reaction was this gut turning feeling like, oh my, like people are going to be, be, be pinned against indigenous hunters, resident hunters, I mean, are going to be pinned against indigenous hunters and sure enough as soon as I log into Instagram and I see some hunters uh, issuing their own statements and I think a lot of them um, they're oversimplified in a way and a narrative that I saw come out first that I really wanted to dispel and maybe I interpreted it wrong I'll take responsibility for that I could be over overly sensitive to this but the narrative that I saw right away was Okay, there's this war, this anti-hunting war against resident hunters. Um, the government made this mistake, and they're trying to save face through popular opinion by sort of um, allowing indigenous people to continue hunting, but taking our rights away. And it really framed this in like, I, I, I don't think a very productive way, but maybe it's productive for the resident hunters. But the crux there was like, we're losing everything, indigenous people are still continuing to get everything, and it's the government's fault. Which, that sentiment itself, that indigenous people still get what, they're, what they want, is like that animosity that you always hear behind closed doors, or at least I grew up hearing between non-indigenous and indigenous hunters. And it's a free-for-all indigenous people, for indigenous people, you know, they get... They get money from the government. They're allowed to hunt whenever they want. They can do whatever they want. They don't have to follow laws. And it's just another story where the government is giving them what they want and we don't get anything. Woe is us. And so I, I just got that inkling that there were some, that narrative existed somewhere. Clearly, Jesse, that's not your opinion. I'm not saying that's yours, but that's sort of what I heard. And so... I thought it was important to really dive down what's going on here, and it paints the similar picture to what Jesse has uh, painted, and that's there's these like there's these this deeper issue of indigenous rights and title, of of addressing injustice and colonization, um, and 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 what the government might be describing as reconciliation, which is something that is necessary, but using reconciliation in sort of a twisted way to continue their uh, laissez-faire, so to speak, way of dealing with um, ecosystem destruction and industry. And, uh, and so I also think it's important to recognize um, that especially with treaties, like Treaty 8 is its own thing in BC, and the rest of BC is unceded territory. And for people to understand what that means, and maybe we can get into that discussion in a bit, but 
Yeah, I see you ready to ask no, a question. No, no, I mean, that's kind of what I was going to ask you. I mean, I, I, I appreciate getting the initial thoughts. I mean, let, well, let's go there next because, I mean, I think that's an important conversation is understanding kind of what the the difference between both the obligations to treaty, obligations under, um, right. it, um, and, and yeah, First Nations rights, uh, grant, and not granted, but uh, um, upheld in other in other ways. So let, let's come back to that. Um, but Jesse, first up, I'd like to go back to you just about that, you know, what Spencer's talking about, um, just that, that sentiment towards uh, First Nations that there's sort of this, you know, unregulated uh, hunting and, and, and increased opportunities. I mean, you're, you're, you're probably the most person that you, you probably have the most conversations with a, the diversity of resident hunters. And, and have you been... Have you been hearing that message or, or that sentiment coming from parts of the resident hunting community? Or what, where do you think people are? How are people seeing this? Well, I, I think it does. I mean, I, I, given all the meetings that I get to have, I, I hear from, from Indigenous, you know, First Nations and non-First Nations people, right? But, but, you know, the way... So to back up, I mean, what happened about three weeks ago is, is the world is confidential when all this stuff happens, blah, blah, blah. You know, we're all talking behind the scenes and, and to make a long story short, it was, it was this proposal. It's a proposal, right? This proposal was leaked at a stakeholders meeting by someone. It was on a Thursday and by Thursday night, my phone was absolutely exploding. Right. Um, and so uh, I let the ministry know on Thursday night that I was going to put out a press release on Friday morning and that I would have staff working all weekend to monitor our social media, but that we would be coming out against government in a big way to kind of, to set the, to set the conversation um, so that we didn't go down this rabbit hole of pitting first nations against non first nations to say, you know, government, this is their thing. They're negotiating it. You really need to take some time as opposed to just as what Spencer's saying, just kind of grasping at straws at a, at a very low level without understanding the complexities. So, um, so, you know, what I would say, Dylan is yes, definitely. There is that sentiment and it, and it flows in both directions. I, you know, get to meet um, first nations from all over the province and there's really varied levels um, and same with non first nations. And so, you know, uh, from my perspective, you work with people you work you want to that want to work with you and that want to take care of fish, wildlife, and habitat. And you know, if people are really resentful or racist or whatever it is, I mean, we just park that. Like, uh, you know, we we control our social media, we control our message, but we can't control everybody's. And so, even with our relationships with First Nations, we work with Treaty Eight, we work with ONA. I mean. We both, you know, with ONA too, we both recognize we have members that don't like, you know, First Nations and non-First Nations. But when the time comes, we rise above it and we do what's right. So so the answer is yes, I, I'm sure it exists. Um, but we have been on this one, you know, pretty squarely pointing at government around a failure. And I feel like our actions have kind of supported that as well in terms of the court case. But yeah, it, it it's real. I mean, it's this is ongoing and there's really hard feelings and, you know, um, but you know, you, you work with the people you can work with. And totally. And to okay. Add well, to that, that, Dylan, um, maybe this is the place to die, uh, to mention, maybe it isn't, we could bring it up later, but 
one of the things I worried about in this like heated conversation was that the idea of indigenous people still harvesting this assumption um, that like science was not a part of indigenous people uh, deciding how to manage these lands going forward. And I think in the message that I kept on seeing was us resident hunters are the only ones who use science. And here's another, here's more proof why we're the victims in this and, and uh, the government doesn't use science. No one's using science but us. And I, I, I just wanted to maybe bring some hope in that saying, actually, no, um, my nation, every other nation in BC pours hundreds of thousands of dollars, even millions of dollars into pairing indigenous knowledge and Western science together to move forward with how we manage every ecosystem in British Columbia. And that's where these partnerships become very rich. Yeah. And we, I should give a plug to our previous podcast with you, Spencer, where we did talk about uh, indigenous approaches to, to stu- like wildlife stewardship, wildlife management, um, both sort of pre-contact and then uh, modern context. And that's podcast. I, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's, it's for a couple of years ago now. Um, but it's, uh, it's, that's a good foundational piece to understanding some of the, some of this, this conversation for sure. Um, how do you think the, na- like, you know, what do you think of the, the first nation perspective of this decision is across the, I mean, has, 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 has there been conversations? Have you had conversations with your brother, the lawyer and other folks that are, you know, in, that work in this, this space and, and what's the perspective of the, you know, the, maybe the implication of this decision? Uh, I mean, like Jesse said, there's like this scale of people's opinions on 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 these issues. Uh, I mean, yeah. So so it, it it's it can vary um, from an indigenous perspective. It's, I mean, keeping in mind that we're pissed off at the government all the time. Like we work with government, we we. We engage with government, we're, but we're almost just as libertarian as your crazy like uncle who still goes on the trap line and lives out there on some level. Um, and I, I think people forget that. Like people often think indigenous people are just in tight with, uh, I, uh, who knows? I mean, uh, with environmental organizations and it's slowly becoming anti-hunting and all this stuff. It's like, no... We're looking out for our own interests. And, and so on some level, um, in those interests, there's this core piece of us that's if we don't see our rights and title recognized, whether it's in treaty or a non-treated nation, if those aren't upheld, we're kind of doomed. Like not just when it comes to harvesting, it's bigger for us. It's about our own health care. It's about our education. It's about our language. It's about our spirituality. And as far as we're concerned, if we don't uphold or challenge these rights, who's going to do it for us? And so I'm assuming, I'm not from the Blueberry, but I, for folks who don't know, I'm from the Gitgat First Nation on the Northwest Coast. Um, but for any nation, that's our top priority is we got to take care of this holistically. And so... Um, forgive me if I sound like an asshole because I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to point out a perspective and I really truly empathize with hunters who might lose out on opportunity. But honestly, it's like, it's, it's a bigger deal than your once a year moose hunt for us. And so please recognize that. 
that um, when we engage in rights and title cases, we have a lot to lose as Indigenous people, and we're putting loads and loads of money into this, not just because we want to hunt. That's a huge part of it. Because our culture, our language, our spirituality, our, our governance, all of those aspects of our society come from hunting. So yes, we care about it. But if we don't fight for our treaty rights, then we lose it all. And so that's our priority. So I could, I could imagine, I wasn't in the meeting rooms, but I could imagine the people saying, if we don't do this, we know this might end up being negative for some hunters. But if we don't do this, we really have, you know, we're at risk here of losing everything. And in the long-term vision as Indigenous people, we believe, I think, for the most part, that we could do co-management, we could steward this to a place where we can support non-Indigenous hunters, non-Indigenous people fishing, hunting, harvesting in the territories that um, we, we look to steward and we want to steward. And, um, and so from that perspective, it's kind of like, you know, this is a short-term loss for a long-term gain in our eyes, because we also believe um, and, uh, uh, that we manage this land the best. And studies support that. The largest uh, conservation organization, the International Union on the Conservation of Nat- Nature, made up of thousands of the world-renowned scientists, have shown studies that Lands managed by indigenous people are more biodiverse, they're healthier than any large government. So why is this a bad place for us to be in? But I do understand there's threats to the resident hunter of thinking, okay, if this becomes an LEH, will we ever get it back? If, if caribou's off the table, will we ever get it back? And that's something I can't speak to because I don't know that history um, of of how long it takes for LEH to come back into the picture to an open season or whatnot. But those are some thoughts going around my head. No, that's a couple of things that really stood out for me there, Spencer. I mean, I mean, the one, the one piece is, you know, this is a big deal and this is a much bigger deal than, uh, you know, for the nation and, and negotiating rights back from, or, or, and, and past wrongs and working towards reconciliation than, and for I have this analogy that I often think about, like, and we've had this conversation, Spencer, a couple times on the podcast. But just like I, I could this, this I can see this coming from a long way away. That that folks like Jesse and I, uh, whose you know way of life is is embedded in hunting and fishing, um, but we are settlers on this land. Uh, that at some point like things are going to change pretty dramatically as we progress towards reconciliation and shared decision-making on the land and collaborative management. However, whatever term you want to put, put around it, um, where, where first nations are reestablishing their right to manage land, wildlife and, and, and going down that road. So it's going to impact hunters more than it's going to impact a lot of other people. Like you could live in your condo in West Vancouver and, walk the sea wall every day and have this wonderful life and reconciliation with first nations might never even ever impact you. You might walk by a couple of signs, uh, that the changes a name from, you know, English Bay to an indigenous name. And that might be all that you really see in the impact, you know, like, whereas us, I think, I think a lot of resident hunters are going to be impacted greatly as, 
indigenous people become more involved in wildlife management and and it could be and you know we've talked about this in a way like we're like and it could be better because why wouldn't it be better like why couldn't we and as jesse you were alluding to let's say why aren't we working together for shared values around improving habitat and improving wildlife numbers like how how is it that we kind of look at we're looking at this one situation going okay allocation is more for them and and there's us and them and 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 it's it's not a healthy place to be when really the foundational question is how much impact are are we are we going to allow by industry on the landscape and at what point do we say no more impact or and i think that's so that's the other thing the other thing i got out of that conversation or that piece there is that there is this you know and jesse you alluded to it like holding like the Blueberry First Nation are holding government accountable for, for their rights in the face of industrial development. And that's something that like hunters and resident hunters and people who care about the environment um, and all the allies that want to see, you know, more conservation and less exploitation have had a hard time holding government accountable to permitting more and more exploitation of the land at the, at the, you know, as it impacts, you know, clean air, water and, and habitat. So, um, yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna take a take a step back and uh, and and maybe go back to Jesse. Just to, one thing we didn't do a great job. Of, I think is is really outlining the there's there's two things that are actually happening right now. So there's there's the there's proposed regulation changes, and maybe we could talk about the um what the proposals are and and maybe allude to the actual wildlife population, the status or the state of the wildlife population. And there's a, there's this comment, and and you mentioned it, Spencer, like well, we're not using science to make this decision. So let, let's talk about the science behind the decision. Uh, we'll talk about the decision and then the science a little bit. I got a couple numbers and probably you have better numbers, Jesse, I'm sure about the health of the moose population and allocation and such. But what was the implication, Jesse? Yeah, and I think this is where it gets, it gets a bit complicated, right? So, so just from like a, whatever, wildlife management piece, Right. So we've got just shy when I add up all of the flights, you got just shy of 61,000 moose. Right. And so typically sustainable harvest for moose population is 5%. If it's really productive, you can get close to 10% of the population. Right. And so that's pretty, you know, you're, 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 you know, that's relatively conservative when we consider other species that, you know, used to have hunting that are really slow growing things like, um, grizzly bears, or in case of First Nations harvest around whales, things that are slow growing, that have slow reproduction, typically, you know, they're, they're lower um, in terms of reproductive success. Um, but for moose, typically it's around five to 10%. And then we have 12 areas where we're doing wolf control for caribou recovery, right? And so I'm, I'm, I'd imagine most everybody's familiar with apparent competition and how caribou recovery works, right? So you go out, you add oil and gas to landscape that does two things. It drives moose populations. It drives predator populations. It allows wolves in particular to hunt more efficiently. And uh, where we add snowmobiling to that mix, it gives wolves access to, to caribou in the winter where they normally wouldn't have it. So there's a whole bunch of things that go on when you nuke the landscape that are not good. And caribou are probably the most fragile species in the system. And so they take a disproportionate hit. And so we are doing wolf management and I think about 12 management units and typically the sustainable harvest for moose when you're doing wolf management is closer like 15 to 20%, right? So when you crunch all the numbers and look at it all, 
you're going to come up with a harvestable surplus, sustainable, of about, I think, 4,800 to about 7,400 moose a year. That's what, you know, everyone could harvest sustainably without having an impact the following year. That's kind of the science piece. Now, I think it's important under that, um, obviously, we, we've been talking to, we have uh, relationships and have been talking, engaging with a number of Treaty 8 um, communities over the last couple of years. And I think on that front, and, and even in the Blueberry case, I mean, when you read it, it's, it's really like there's localized issues. Like it's kind of, in the Blueberry case, they talk about having to go farther than they went before to find moose and hunting farther from the community. And I think that's where, that's where you know, blanket solutions, like 50% across the board, that's where the challenge is. And, and when we've met with, with communities, they've said, you know, August is really important. That's when they go out and they like to hunt moose in August, um, which is part of the culture. And they don't like to be hunting post rut for bulls. Um, they like hunting with closer communities. They have cultural camps. Um, there's a whole bunch of things. They wanna see grizzly bear hunting, come back, all of those things. So, so I guess, you know, the, the real issue around the science piece again, is that government has kind of put this proposal together that we're just going to do a 50% reduction across the territory. And when we talk to the communities, it's far more nuanced than that. And so there's times of year and there's places where they don't want to see a whole bunch of resident hunters, which I think is, is fair in that respect. Right. But on the flip side of that, there are a number of parts up in the, up in the piece and, Spencer and Dylan, if you guys have been up there sheep hunting, you know where I'm talking about. There's a whole bunch of places that are completely inaccessible unless you're going in on horses or a float plane. And I think that's where that's where government has lost the nuance in this conversation is, you know, that's what the communities are telling us. I'm not going to, you know, individualize communities, but that's what we're hearing is there's some really important times and places. And I think that there is much more opportunity to sort that out and to make it so that everybody can feel good as opposed to government's approach of, well, we're just going to reduce it by 50% all across the entire landscape. And it's like, wait, you know, that's not what we're hearing from communities. We think there's a better way to do this. We think that there are win-wins and that's what we've heard from some of the communities is we want a win-win out of this. And in this case, even some of the communities don't feel like this is a win-win. So, so I think, again, I mean, I would put the onus on government's shoulders that, you know, you need to get people in a room and people need to talk about where they're concerned and what they'd like to see. And I feel like, you know, we can do a much better job of, of articulating solutions. Yeah, that's, uh, I really like, okay. I, so I just going to go, we're going to go to you here to Spencer second, to, in a second, Spencer, just to get your thoughts on some of those, uh, uh, clo- like time of year closures and how to, uh, we'll come back to that. But so just to clarify, just, the, the actual regula- proposed regulation change, so first thing is is that the, the moose population is, is is what we consider quite healthy or growing in this area. It's it's one of the, actually one of the more positive stories in in the, our moose population in BC, partly because of the wolf uh, management has helped. Uh, the, the moose have benefited from uh, the managing wolf populations for, for the threatened caribou populations. Um, and by going to an LEH system, the 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 way that the uh, plan reads from government is that they're going to try and harvest fifty percent less moose in the area and have fifty percent less hunters hunting in the area. So prior to 
um, this decision. It was a general open season, so any, anybody could go up and hunt moose. And there's a, uh, there's an antler restricted hunt, either ten points, uh, tripalm, or a ten point bull, or I think there was a spike fork bull season as well. So, um, in any given year, you know, I'm not sure. Do you know what hunter success rate was? Yeah, in region seven. Yeah, for sure. So, so I mean, the reality. So when we go, you know, close to sixty-one thousand moose, we come up with forty-eight hundred to seventy-five hundred is would be the sustainable harvest between everyone. And yeah. the last five years, the harvest has been around twelve fifty thirteen hundred. So, so the reality is we're getting down to, you know, license hunting would be around six hundred moose a year out of a harvestable surplus of forty-eight hundred to seventy-five hundred. So mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're not. We're not in the reality of kind of the the sustainable piece, like I said, and I think that's part of the challenge with nuance. Um, but the the ten point tripalm spike fork obviously means that you have to put in a lot of effort, and it almost creates a fail safe season in that sense, where there ends up being a lot of escapement every year from the bull population. So, you know, when we kind of do the math and look at it and go, okay, right now it's a ten point tripalm um, two point season. If we were to reduce the harvest by 50% and go to an any bull season, that means you're going to cut the number of hunters actually by 75% probably or more. Yeah, because the success rate, so right now it's just quite, you got it. You may have to look at, you know, five or 10 bulls before one is a legal bull. And if you're hunting now, I was just having this conversation with with Jody, who's a, she hunts and her uh, up in in the Treaty 8 territory. and uh, in the piece where she's from and uh yeah they on average they look at you know probably five to ten bulls before one is legal so they have to find five or ten bulls for one to be legal um and their harvest success rate they're excellent hunters with good access is probably a two two hunters every takes them 10 days to kill a moose and that's hunting with like local knowledge private land access so it's a pretty tough hunt so what that what that actually means is like statistically like it's gonna be it's pretty hard you have to hunt a lot of days um, to, to and look at a lot of moose before one is legal and I think if we look at the stats it's probably like uh, forty hunter days for every dead moose in that zone Four, that's kind of the forty six point eight forty six point eight that's not a bad guess hey eh? um, but yeah generally speaking the average moose hunter has to hunt for forty plus days to kill a moose in BC so I think just to break it down and simplify things I. When we go to a LEH model, typically it's for any bull moose. So the first moose you see with antlers, you can shoot. Uh, so it's going to reduce the amount of days that you need to hunt. Uh, likely there's going to be more, it's going to be a fairly, it should be a fairly good hunting opportunity if it's half as many hunters and likely more moose. So it'll, uh, it'll, it'll might even drive up the demand to hunt in the area, further decreasing the resident hunter, local resident hunters opportunities to, to get after moose in their, in their territory. So, or in their, in their, in their, in their local area. Um, yeah. So it's a pretty big impact for sure. I think, and I think that's the concern for folks. Um, Spencer, I was kind of curious. I, I really appreciate that, that contribution from Jesse around, uh, just managing resident hunter pressure and how it impacts, um, you know, the indigenous hunt hunts and hunters. And, uh, I don't know if that if any popped up for you or any thoughts around, um, how the resident hunt, and maybe you can even talk about fishing impacts your 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 ability, your community's ability to harvest and food in in your territory. Um, so one of the things that came to mind while Jesse was 
speaking was um, just pointing out another nuance that I think as nations or as cultures, uh, we are very closely tied to our own traditional territories. And so this, this sweeping decision, um, as we're describing, uh, it sounds like the solution that the government has sort of chosen is, is based on this expectation or this hope that um, maybe people from Blueberry will just go hunt elsewhere. But the fact is that people don't want to go hunt elsewhere. We want to maintain our relationships with the ecosystems we believe we come from. And so I want to hunt on my grandfather's trap line. I, I, in, in our system, we have strong legal ties that define our boundaries uh, just as complex as the Canadian provincial legal system as you carve out regions or territories. We have hereditary title on the coast that says this is the territory you're from. And it reminded me, as you were describing this, Jesse, when we were in a big fight um, at the mouth of the Skeena with the proposed LNG facility that was going to just blow up the salmon habitat, uh, Flora Bank at the mouth of the Skeena. And I remember one of our guys was in a helicopter um, uh, flying over the Skeena and they, they were explaining accumulative effects, like how important these salmon are for all these different people and how every different tribe has a different tributary on the Skeena that we govern, that we manage and we watch and try to fish from. And the guy was like, well, with an impact benefit agreement, why don't you just, you know, go fish somewhere else or buy your fish from the store? And there's just this total disconnect of what it means to be connected to a specific territory or a specific ecosystem. And I often think actually that at least people in my village, if they could not harvest in their own territory, um, I think that connection, that spiritual, emotional connection to land is, is more important than actually going out and harvesting or killing something. And so I'm, I might be over-speaking, I don't know, but like, there's something, as someone who comes from a nation in a territory, there's something shameful and demeaning of like, my territory's nuked, I'm going to encroach on my neighbors because the government said I could. It's just not right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where our own indigenous laws come into play, that we probably wouldn't even do that to our neighbor. And, and it's kind of like the government says, here's your solution. We've opened up all of the peace for you. And we've made this mirage that we've gotten rid of resident hunters. And now you, Blueberry, you can just drive your car 500 kilometers that way. And you'll have a good chance at killing a moose. And it's, it's just not that simple, like Jesse said. There's these nuances that are just complex. And so that was one thought. Yeah, that's... I forget if you had another question on top of that, Dylan. No, I mean, th- that was kind of where I wanted to. I, I, yeah, yeah, that was exactly where I wanted to reflect on. It's just how how that perception is, and um, so one of the things that's being asked in this process, and, and you see it on social media, it's the it's the comment on this. There, there is a consultation period uh, for this regulation change, and and whether you know, and I think one of the things that I'm struggling with, I haven't I haven't posted anything about it. I haven't. Um, probably because I'm waiting for this conversation because I think I'll be in a better place to, to provide comment and learning from you guys. Um, but like, I am supportive of the, you know, of, of this decision and I am supportive of, you know, holding, you know, past decision makers accountable for, uh, the impacts of, 
of oil and gas exploitation forestry uh, throughout BC because I think the cumulative well the cumulative effects of these industries have devastated um, you know our way of life for for so many people and it's it's allowed for a way of life for so many other people I recognize that like the the oil and gas sector has made lots of people millionaires in this in in this country and and you know and I know it's paid for schools and taxes and all that, and through taxes and all that stuff but like a lot of other people have you know can't do what they can't connect with nature the way they used to be able to and I see that certainly in the southern part of BC and it's it's one that just I'm just I'm sort of just every every time you go back out there in the forest it there's there's less of it there and uh, and the wildlife that relies on those forests are struggling to find little patches of 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 habitat to survive another winter and and it's 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 devastating and I um Anyway, so so as as a as someone who's sort of trying to figure this out, like I don't want to, I want to say, hey, I support the you know this efforts to, you know, to reconcile past wrongs with the Blueberry First Nation, but I don't feel like this is the right solution. So it, it and and I want to be constructive in that ability to to provide feedback. So maybe Jesse, you know, maybe give us some like short of the 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 LEH is a blunt tool to reduce authorizations, but in a recognizing that there is a responsibility or, or there is a, I think everybody, even everything I've seen from BCWF has, you know, at the front has, has acknowledged the importance of reconciliation with first nations and supports this decision that that we just, the support is not for this negotiated response. Um, Can you provide some insights as to alternative, like alternative ways of approaching you know, trying to meet the obligation to reconcile with the Blueberry Nation, but maybe not going as blunt as the LEH um, tool has provided? Yeah, that, yeah. Okay, we can kind of fine scale it. I mean, um, the fine scale is more, you know, around, like, as we, as we discussed, what we're hearing from communities is, there's times and places that are close to communities where they want to be able to go hunting, where they want to be able to access moose, where they don't want to see a bunch of people. So that's that's kind of the the short term, right? Is I think there's areas um, where where communities where communities are focused, where they really want to see um, that opportunity, and they don't want to you know they want to be able to hunt fish and trapped undisturbed. And then there's areas outside of that where it's probably not a big deal if there's more hunters. So I think there's the piece around moving the harvest and the hunters around um, to accommodate communities' interests. Um, you know, I, I think that's the short term. But I, I got to, you know, from my perspective and the BC Wildlife Federation's perspective, this is really more about the long term, right? Is, you know, when the Northeast, the caribou issue came up two years ago, we, we got right out of that. We, we didn't even participate because we could see the train was going to come off the tracks. And so this is, you know, the challenge right now is that the province is kind of in this, the, the provinces, I feel like the province's perspective is reconciliation is a deal. Like let's make a deal and then we'll move on to the next deal. And let's just get these things signed up because it's in our way. And from the BC Wildlife Federation's perspective, I mean, you know, we're in a place now where all of the projects we do all are you know, co-led or community involvement, you know, we're putting up big eight and a half million dollar burn proposal. I mean, the, the first people I go to now are communities, right? And the last people I go to now are government because we know we have to work on this together. And so, 
you know, from our perspective, reconciliation is really the, the missing piece here is that the government really needs to think about how it walks away from these communities. And if you walk away from these communities with Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities having more scars after a deal has been struck than before, we all have a serious problem. Right. I think that's the biggest challenge in this is, you know, the kind of the feds take the same approach as, well, let's just make a deal and then walk away and, you know, and have these communities not, you know, it makes things worse, not better sometimes. And so I'm, I, you know, I, I'm getting away from your question. Um, I feel like we've laid it out kind of for your, your listeners in terms of what the nuance is, and then they can provide the feedback as they see fit. But, you know, at the end of this government is just going to look at it and go, how many opposed, how many were supportive, how many, we're unsure that that's how they're going to measure it. Right. So um, I would say, you know, the value in this is, you know, there's the proposal piece. You got to do that. You know, there's the letter writing piece. That's fine. But really, people need to go in and meet with their MLAs and need to kind of get it into their minds that, you know, we're not going to solve reconciliation by just making deals. We're going to solve reconciliation by people seeing a brighter future, by people getting along, by people having resilient relationships. And quite frankly, like those relationships come from doing positive things for the land, right? You don't build great relationships sitting in a boardroom at opposite sides of a table. So I think that's, you know, that's the longer picture is, you know, in the case of Treaty 8, the government needs to say, here's the plan. Here's how much money we're going to throw at it. We're going to get everybody in a room. We're going to figure out what the landscape should look like. We're going to figure out how many moose we want. We're going to figure out how we're going to take care of them. And then the very last piece is the allocation piece. You do that at the very end after everybody can see, oh, look, we're going to have enough moose for everyone. And here are the hot spots. Here are the cultural areas. I mean, we did this with the Taltan too. There were cultural areas where they wanted to kind of set things aside and where they were concerned about the number of hunters. And it's like, okay, let's figure it out. What kind of regulations can we meet, do, do, deal with to achieve that? So uh, I guess it's, you know, I'm getting a long ways from the original question, but it's it, that's the bigger picture. Like that's what we really need to get onto is is how do we build these relationships and how do we take care of this so everybody can see a future? Because right now in the make a deal world, people don't see a future in that. That's really well said, Jesse. It's uh, you know, as a as a government person that is in sort of stuck them sort of stuck in the middle of of between industry and and uh, the my the park act which guides what I do. But of course the our responsibility to work with first nations and, and a shared stewardship model. Um, it's pretty complicated. And, and there is sort of a mentality that even as someone who like, a, like there is sort of like, let's just get this deal done and move on to the next deal. And, and that's a, it's not, it's not the way forward and it's not constructive, but it's sort of, you get dragged into this, you get dragged into it a little bit as a, because it's so complex, you just kind of want to just see a way forward, but you're, I, I do like this, this looking towards a, a brighter future is yeah, it, it's, it's a, it's going to be a long it's a journey together. It's not, there's not really, it's a whole different way of looking at things. And I, I do, I do like that, that take Spencer, what are some thoughts around, you know, providing constructive feedback to government um, on specifically this, but maybe trending towards what, what Jesse was going there. Yeah, uh, I think Jesse nailed it on this idea of making <laughs> making a deal as opposed to this other thing. And something I often talk about in my work, in my research, is um, this 
this facade of reconciliation becoming a deal to be made. And it's like if we do a uh, like this overarching impact benefits agreement deal right now we'll have achieved reconciliation if we give you this much money and we do this stuff like the deal's done reconciliation is over yeah. and so something i often talk about in my own research yeah is um is this idea of let's reimagine this as a marriage because that's what it was and that's what these treaties were they were seen as like two parties coming together and making the commitment to work together indefinitely and so when you frame things in that way, you start to walk the path differently in how you negotiate and how you do things. And the same needs to be done for Indigenous and non-Indigenous hunters. Is how I mean, Jesse's laid it out there. Like That's how we need to move forward. Is It's not a series of little deals. It's a series of, of this marriage. But also from the Indigenous perspective, really recognizing and upholding Indigenous rights and titles in that marriage because that was a foundational piece of those marriage vows so to speak and so another thing i talk about in my own work is um, it doesn't just end there um, but as indigenous peoples we also have stories we have laws we have rituals of of how those marriages are also created for each and every different species and how when we follow those laws and we have those relationships with those species, it's also a more sustainable relationship. And I, I, do we have time Just for go for example? it. I, I like where this is going. It's got it's uh, leaving Dylan? in a much more positive place than I'd, I, I imagined okay. us getting to. But this is great. I, don't get uh, too excited. Okay. I'm going to bring you right back down. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> um, so an example that I, I, I like to talk about is um, back home we have this story of how we learned to harvest salmon. And often these laws in these teachings, or the way I phrase it, these quote-unquote, let's say, marriage vows, um, came, about, came about, it was through the species themselves. And so we talk about rituals that happened that allowed us to communicate with other species. And in this case, there's a long story um, it, this story I'm thinking of in particular exists across the coast. It's about, um, it, it's referred to as the salmon boy or the salmon prince. But a salmon is, uh, a boy is sucked down under the water by the salmon people. And they lay out a series of laws of how you're supposed to harvest them. And they say, if you harvest us in this way, it will help us too. It'll help us be bountiful. And through that, indigenous people were given technologies such as fish weirs, fish traps, how to deal with fish remains in a respectful way, the songs and ceremonies that come with it. And now, as a side note, science is showing how fish weirs and fish traps made very strong, sustainable um, fish popu salmon populations through in-river fisheries that challenge um, uh, the actual number... The number of fish we could harvest would challenge industrial fisheries today. And so these marriages don't only exist between the humans, and but also the species. And so when we see ourselves in that way, I think we're putting ecosystems first, like Jesse just said. And then we sort out these human details. Um, but when you look to indigenous law, it already lays out that story in a very beautiful way. Um, another piece of this 
um, this is, I don't know, maybe this will be the part that brings you down, Dylan, um, that I'm genuinely sort of cranky about or bitter about, but I'm, I'm, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when it comes to a relationship with land, from, from what I see, and this is all anecdotal evidence, but the people who are standing up for the land are indigenous people. Like, who are the ones getting arrested and trying to stop the government in industry? Who are the ones spearheading these court cases? How often does your average hunter from Abbotsford go up north, put their body on the front lines of any development that endangers salmon or endangers any ecosystem to really make their voice heard against the government? I don't see that. And I, I saw a study the other day where um, indigenous people are opposing the equivalent of 25% of the current, of, of industrial products, or industrial projects that would make up the equivalent of 25% of America's uh, uh, emissions. And they successfully stop 12.5%. Indigenous people are clearly bearing a huge weight compared to any other population. We are 4% of the population in Canada. What percent are hunters? I don't know. But sometimes it feels like we're bearing 100% when it's our people who are being harassed, our people who are being thrown in jail, our people who, whose lives are being really threatened by projects in these ways. We're the first to feel climate change we're the first to feel these accumulative effects as a people as a society where's everyone else so that's my sort of like end note that may or may not have bummed you out but it's a call to action of like relationship like truly be an well, ally absolutely and i think that's very well said spencer and thank you for sharing that i mean i think and i think this is goes back to jesse saying like how do we like how do we how do we truly build relationships with First Nations to uh, hold government accountable and an industry accountable? And I think that's that's really what we that where we have to navigate and find our way forward. Um, I think we should kind of move towards a conclusion here, Jesse. Um, you know, just with that last thought there, and and how do we truly move towards? And from where you're sitting, where you you have a strong voice within the hunting community, how do we? get there and you've, I think you've this has been said throughout the podcast but maybe reinforce how, we, how we're going to build that relationship going forward yeah yeah and I think Spencer's comments are really well taken um, in that sense and in certainly in my role I find it's really interesting now that we're, we're kind of moving into this G to G world I guess there's two challenges one, if we had the ability to take the government to court, we would do it every <laughs> single day. I knew you were going to go there. I'm glad you did. I want to go. <laughs> like, like, absolutely would. Um, but also, uh, underneath that, you know, in my role now, I spend most of my time helping and supporting nations um, around their issues. You're still here, yeah. You're just oh, uh, you're, still you're, on? your camera's down, but yeah, yeah. Sorry, um, yeah. So in my role now, I spend a lot of my time supporting nations. So in things like when we talk about salvage logging and we talk about post-fire burns and we talk about managing road densities, you know, because we're rarely in the G to G room, 
Um, it, it is very strange and, and all of the MLAs and ministers are aware of this, but I spend most of my time supporting nations on developing briefs and accessing scientists and trying to kind of help them to craft the message as, as well as they can. So, so yeah, so it's, um, you know, I would say um, I definitely, on, on behalf of BCWF membership, if we had the ability to, to go after the province and take them to court, we would absolutely every day of the week. It's that, you know, the challenge for us is we, we just l literally do not have those rights right now. We don't have that ability. We have tried in the past. Um, sometimes we can act as interveners, um, but, but that's the challenge on our end. So, so I would say, you know, again, too, I think the biggest challenge is, is kind of how this relationship is perceived. And, you know, there's one of two ways. One is, you know, we, we, you know, see each other as competition or we see each other as allies. And, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, you're where you were brought up, you have a really deep connection to the land, but I'm sure, you know, also Dylan has his areas that he goes to that are kind of near and dear to his heart. And I know even in, in the case of the Thompson steelhead, um, I have a bunch of members that still go to Spence's bridge every year, even though fishing has been closed for 15 years, they still go there and stare at the river for a few days and hang out and talk about what used to be. So, um, you know, and I also have a cousin who's probably going to be listening to this, who's um, a member of uh, ONA and, and West Bank First Nations. So I really do um, feel like there's a lot of overlap in the values. I think that the trick is, you know, sorting through the space where we see each other possibly as competition as opposed to seeing each other as allies. And, and I certainly, you know, there's there's days where there are challenges, but I think broadly, you know, those values are, are shared, um, pretty well. Right on, Jesse. Thanks for that. Um, so I, I'm going to wrap things up here, but one question for you, Spencer, for, and if people want to better understand, uh, sort of the historical context of, 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 of how we got here between settlers and first nations, where would you direct people to do some self-education on that? Maybe that's a loaded question, but just uh, as a, aside from listening to our two podcasts that, that are awesome. Yeah, man. The, the, luckily nowadays there's so much out there. You could just Google truth and reconciliation and there would be documents and documents and that would come up. I mean, you could, um, Google all kinds of things, indigenous land stewardship and see amazing resources on indigenous guardians and how they collaborate, how we, they, all of us collaborate with Western science to really try to move forward as a society on how we protect these ecosystems. You can Google indigenous land protectors and see what's happening on the ground. You can see all kinds of things. Um, I, uh, and um, I mean, often, you know, social media, the internet, it's a double-edged sword. You might find some really haywire stuff out there. You could always just go to a local bookstore if there is one and ask, you know, what's a great book on, um, uh, on, on the history of Indigenous people here? Uh, I saw one um, that was uh, very popular for a while called The Inconvenient Indian. Um, there's all kinds of great books that really lay out just what this is today. 
um, and um, and or how we got here today, and and the place that we're in. So if folks want to dive down that, um, just yeah, just explore. There's there's information Absolutely. out well, there. Thanks for that, Spencer. Yeah, the inconvenient Indian. I read that last summer. Um, yeah, it's a great great historical context, and certainly for Canada and and uh, how things are sort of got, how we got here. So that's a good place to point people. Um, Jesse, you know, there's a, there's a call to action for, for, you know, folks to look at the regulation change and provide comment. Do you want to, um, provide some, some support on, on how people can respond, how, how, where to where, point people, where to look and how to get involved? Yeah. Uh, on the BC Wildlife Federation, I believe on all our social media and on our website, um, uh, we'll be probably putting stuff out every day talking about the issue. Um, the Provincial Angling, Hunting, Trapping, Engagement website is where to send your feedback. One step above that is a letter to your MLA, and the best is meeting with your MLA. And I think, you know, there's the, the short term or, or the medium term here in terms of this specific proposal and trying to negotiate or figure out a way. Um, and like I said, you know, this comes from some of the nations. They're looking for a win-win in this. And so I think there's a better way forward as opposed to you know, kind of an across the board, um, 50% reduction closure, closure of caribou. Like there's a better way to do this where people, everybody feels better about themselves. Um, but in the longer term, I do really think that, you know, our, our community Dylan needs to get it across to our elected representatives. Cause this is the irony too, is that, you know, first nations talk to their communities and ask them what they want and where they want to go and what's important. And quite often the province does not do that. Right. So there's a real, there's a real challenge around that. And so I would say, you know, thinking about the bigger picture is really trying to push the province to reconsider what reconciliation is and having them get out of the mindset that it is just, let's make a deal and move on and get into the mindset of, you know, how do we create synergies? How do we make sure that people are better off? How do we leave this place so that communities work together and, and you know, have relationships? Like I, it's very interesting when you go across the province, there are like, there are things that have gone on for decades that that are left. You can see it on people's faces and, you know, we should be trying to fix that, I feel like, mm-hmm. you know? And, and make a deal does not fix that. So I think we've got some really big things we need to start talking about and thinking about. And, you know, we really need to push our, our provincial, our elected officials to move right on, in that Jesse, direction. I appreciate those closing thoughts. I think... Spencer. There's, there's one more thing I wanted to point out that I think Jesse has been speaking to that um, hasn't really come out fully and how influential public opinion is on the government and so the most important thing i think as a human species we can convey to a government is that one we want healthy ecosystems and two we want to be able to live within those ecosystems by harvesting within them and if that's our goal and our vision as a human society then we'll get somewhere Um, but now it, it, it's it's quite fractured in the political world, and so we need to bring it's that. It's a pretty simple together. story, isn't it? And uh, when we do, then yeah, it is, and and hopefully public opinion can change political decisions on a lot yeah, of these absolutely. issues. Absolutely, 
Well, that's a that's a that's a nice place to close, Spencer, and and it's a positive thought. And I, I I was saying at the beginning or in the preamble, I just you know I, I try to stay in the realm of positivity in these podcasts, but this is an important conversation, and I and uh, I think it's important that bringing your both of your voices into this conversation is going to be great for the listeners and and the hunting community. So I I really do appreciate you both taking the time and hanging out. So thanks for being on the podcast. I think just hang on for a minute after I hit stop here, we can talk about hunting and the stuff that we actually like talking about you guys thank you so much thanks spencer thanks dylan thanks thanks, jesse hey folks i hope you enjoyed that podcast now we'd love to hear from you So drop us a question either on our Instagram or email me directly at dylan at eatwild.ca and we'll do our best to answer that question on our future podcast or we might even build an entire podcast based on your questions. So thanks for doing that. So if you want to hear more from Eat Wild, you can come join us. We're doing a series of Eat Wild Learn to Hunt webinars. So we're getting together on a monthly basis talking about all things hunting with a group of mentors through a webinar format. They're tons of fun. Come join us there. Now, if you happen to live in the Vancouver, Burst Columbia area, we do in-person workshops where we get together, learn fundamental skills for you to be a better hunter. Hope you can hang out for one of those too if you happen to be in the area. Now, we'd love it if you could leave a review or a comment wherever you listen to your podcast. That'd be a great help to us. And more importantly, share this podcast with folks who care about the stuff we're talking about. So thanks for doing that. Until next time, eat well and wild. Well.